five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Welcome to Doing Business in the Solar System, where we talk about finding opportunities in the universe. This is a Space Cube podcast, and your host is Elizabeth Howell. We found thousands of exoplanets in the last 30 years, particularly with tools like NASA's Kepler mission and the HARPS instrument at the La Silla Telescope in Chile. But for the, the last few years, we've had the capability to seek out worlds that are potentially habitable, like the famous TRAPPIST-1 system with several planets the size of Earth. So far, these worlds are mainly lights in a telescope, but before long, observatories and potential missions will show us more. To tell us more about the future of exoplanet science, we'll hear from Frank Marches, a senior planetary astronomer at the SETI Institute. Welcome. Hey, hi, Liz. Thank you for having me. Anytime. So let's start with a few questions about the state of exoplanet science. First of all, how do we search for distant worlds? Uh, there is multiple ways to find distant worlds, uh, but the, um, I'm going to talk about the most successful one. Uh, one of them is called transit. It's basically an indirect way. We don't search for the exoplanet directly. We are detecting the shadow of the exoplanet. So we're waiting for the exoplanet to pass between us and the star. And what we will see is a small attenuation, dimming of the light of the star, and from this, we can infer the presence of the planet, the size of the planet, roughly knowing the size of the star. And we can also have an idea of the orbit of the planet if you have multiple observations. This is done using uh, space telescopes like Kepler, TESS from NASA. And we have multiple missions soon uh, from Europe as well, who will be uh, doing the same uh, search. But we can also do that from the ground using uh, very small aperture telescopes. We do that with uh, um, a 4.5-inch telescope at Winistellar, and we can detect, for instance, Jupiter-sized exoplanets in orbit around uh, G-type stars, stars like our. The second technique that's been used, and in fact, this is the one that was used first to detect the first exoplanet in 1995. Um, it's called radial velocity. And in this case, uh, we do search for, we, we detect the motion of the star due to the presence of the planet. Because stars or planets orbit around stars, we know that, but in fact, they don't orbit around the star itself. They orbit around the, the barycenter of the system. So the star is also moving, wobbling around this barycenter. So if you do what we call spectroscopy, you look at the light of the star, and you can see some emission line or absorption line due to the presence of uh, material in the chromosphere, etc. you will see that this line slightly moves back and forth a few meters per second for the smallest exoplanet, like Earth-like exoplanet. And by measuring this small motion, we can infer the presence of a planet, derive its, uh, its mass and its orbit. It's massish because we don't really know the mass. We just have an idea of the angle. Uh, so it's a, bit, um, it's a bit more complicated than that. So those are the two main methods. And with this method, we detected roughly 4,000 exoplanets so far. I don't know the exact number. It changed every week because every week, uh, tests and other groups find uh, um, exoplanets and publish those. So it's a very 
active, active field of research with a lot of new discoveries. I agree. It's something that's quite fun to keep track of because it changes so rapidly. That's part of the joys of uh, exoplanet science. Now, I want to zero in on something that journalists like me sometimes use and perhaps a little bit unconsciously or maybe not quite in the right way, and that's the word habitable. So when we say that a world is habitable, what are some of the limitations with that term? Yeah, the word the word is used way way too much in my mind, but you know it's also because it makes it more interesting. So what we what people say when they meant uh, astronomers and reporters when when they say that the planet is habitable, is that the planet is basically located not too far, not too close from the star. So if this planet has um, is terrestrial and has more or less the same composition than Earth atmosphere, it will have a temperature which is close to the temperature of, uh, of our own planet, meaning that it could have liquid water on the surface and ocean. Um, if you look, um, there is um, a, um, a very interesting catalog developed by the University of Puerto Rico in Arece at Arecibo, and they have a list of uh, potentially habitable exoplanets, and there is right now 60 of them, 60 of those potentially habitable. And they're taking into account what I just mentioned, the mass of the planet, the distance of the planet, and the source of energy, which is the sun. And they kind of uh, created this Earth's similarity index, which gives you an idea of how similar will be this planet compared to our own planet Earth. That's great. And then how populous are Earth-like planets or maybe Earth-sized planets, it might be the better way to put it, within the, uh, the observable set of exoplanets that we found? And how best can we search for them? So the phew, there is multiple point here in this question. So we we know roughly, uh, we know that a lot of exoplanets on the 4,000 that I mentioned to you are um, terrestrial planets, in fact. So that could be habitable. Um, and we know that because Kepler, and that was a big surprise, Kepler has detected a lot of exoplanets which are uh, Earth or super-Earth. They are the most common one. And the statistical analysis based on the catalog of Kepler's, Kepler spacecraft have shown that, in fact, uh, considering the type of star we have in our, uni in our galaxy, the Milky Way, um, we could have a, a, at least sorry, 300 million potentially habitable exoplanets in our galaxy. That's a huge number. And that's a very interesting number. It means that there is a lot of places in our galaxy that could have liquid water and ocean. But as you mentioned, it's not really potentially habitable doesn't mean habitable. Because uh, we know that to have liquid water on, an, uh, on the surface of our planet, we, put, we, we needed to have a very stable sun, a very uh, cool atmosphere, um, no flaring. Uh, we, knew, we know that the water had to be brought probably from the outer part of the solar system. So to have liquid water on a planet is more than just being located in the Goldilocks zone. It's more complex than that. Okay. And uh, these Earth-sized planets are, of course, rather small compared to, say, a planet that's the size of Jupiter. And so how soon would we be able to look at 
super Earths or smaller planets and probe their, their atmospheres to see how habitable they are? Well, we are working on that. This is, in fact, the main goal of most astronomers like myself. Uh, just to put in, in the, the story in context here, uh, we imaged the first Jupiter-sized exoplanet in 2015, so very recently. Um, this was done using adaptive optics on the 8-meter class telescope, the Gemini Southern uh, Observatory, and this instrument called GPI. Uh, this research is led by Bruce McIntosh and 100 researchers located everywhere in the world. And I'm part of this amazing team of people. And we detected a Jupiter-sized exoplanet. Um, this detection, the seeing of this planet, seeing a tiny dot moving in orbit around the star, it's, a very it's a very interesting for us because from this tiny dot, we can infer the temperature, the composition of the exoplanet. So it gives us way more information than those indirect methods that I described previously. So the problem now is that an Earth-like exoplanet in orbit around a G-type star is a thousand times more uh, fainter than, um, than a Jupiter-sized exoplanet. So to do this, we need to build better instruments. And uh, that's the technological challenge at the moment. Um, there is multiple options, uh, a long list of options. One of them is to do the expensive way, is to build a gigantic space telescope like LUVOA or ABEX, are projects that has been envisioned by uh, NASA and could potentially image exoplanet. LUVOA could detect 300 at least Earth-like exoplanets, see them. But there is also other way that I want to mention because I think a lot of people are not aware of that. What we could do as well is to build a small telescope and choose carefully our target. Instead of looking at all the stars, the bright stars in our galaxy around us, let's look at the closest one. Let's look, for instance, at Alpha Centauri A and B. And in fact, um, multiple researchers have shown that with only a one-meter class telescope, staring continuously Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B with the same technology that we have for LUVOA or ABEX, adaptive optics, for instance, we could see an Earth-like exoplanet. We could detect another pale blue dot in orbit around Alpha Centauri A and B. And this is very interesting because a image could radically change the way we see uh, our place in the universe. Because if we find these tiny pale blue dots, and if we see the presence of water and maybe the presence of a biosphere, that would change the way we see ourselves because we are fine life. I, I really agree with that. And I wanted to talk to you about another technological advance, which is maybe, maybe even further in the future, trying to visit these places in person. And so is it feasible to actually even imagine that, given that the closest such system is something like four light years away from us? Well, everything is visible if you put enough money and resources, I will say. But um, it's a big project. I mean, uh, it would take thousands of years to just go to Alpha Centauri and B um, if you want to send humans specifically. Uh, we can imagine building those gigantic spacecraft with uh, um, a, a fake gravity and have those humans traveling over there, generation of generation of those hum of humans basically will, um, will 
one day see this exoplanet. But we can also send robots. Uh, we have done that in the solar system, and we have explored um, other planets using those robotic missions. So why not, why not sending one of these spacecraft? And there is a very interesting project by the Breakthrough uh, uh, Initiative, which is um, called Starshot. Uh, so what they want to do is to send this tiny, small spacecraft with a gigantic solar, um, so, solar sail, and this will be um, sent to, to World Alpha Centauri using extremely powerful lasers. We don't have yet this technology, but we can. We, it's possible to do it. I mean, there is tests being done so, uh, so far, showing that the impulse is sufficient to accelerate this uh, solar cell, small spacecraft, to the speed of uh, half or quarter of the speed of light. So in this case, instead of thousands of years, we could have a picture of this uh, exoplanet around Alpha Centauri A and B in, let's say, 20, 25 years. It's not that much. No, indeed, it's not that much. And um, I'm also kind of trying to think about how economically we can make it work, because you made the great point that you throw enough money at the problem, often it becomes possible, but then there are those folks that are trying to find the business opportunities. So I looked back a little bit imperfectly probably at history and I was thinking about that age of colonization that was happening with uh, numerous European countries in a few centuries ago. And essentially there was an interesting situation where they were looking for resources, quote, over there, meaning in the new world, but there were a lot of mistakes that were made back then as they were using those resources. They were having a slave trade, they were exploiting it uh, to the detriment of the local populations, numerous other problems as well. Obviously we don't want to repeat those, but is there a way that we could try and build maybe a new new world idea uh, to try and get some economic incentives that could push us to explore other Earths. Well, there is a lot of science fiction books I've been talking about that. One of them is also a show called The Expense. Uh, you probably have watched this. It's, yes. uh, uh, the season four is basically uh, um, a moment for which humanity have access to a technology, an alien technology, and they're capable of exploring other worlds and find habitable exoplanet. And you see what happened. They see the exodus, the people leaving to, uh, to see those new worlds. It's the nature of humanity, in fact, to explore. We have done that, as you mentioned, in the past, and we will do it again if we find exoplanets. If one day someone brings us a picture of an exoplanet which could have life, a biosphere, I'm betting that there will be some people who will want to go there to explore this world. And the exploration phase uh, will be scientific, truly, but very quickly it will be also just to go there to settle an, a new, uh, to settle on a new planet, to, uh, to find maybe new resources, to have access to additional resources. It's but what hap that's what happened in the in the show The Expanse. They have access to those planets and they go there to mine minerals, for instance, because uh, humanity will need those rare uh, minerals for uh, new technology. So maybe this will happen. I can't predict the future, but I know that human always ex has always been explorers. So we will go there and we will find a way to make it work and to make to make kind of a new 
a new society, a new planet where people can live. And I don't know what system will be used by then because we probably will have found something different, economically speaking, uh, to make a, society, a, bit, a better society. That's what I'm hoping. I'm a, a, a very optimistic person on this, for this. I hope so as well. Um, now, I wanted to ask you about maybe a little bit of a related aspect, which is there's a few ideas about how we could go so far. There's uh, obviously advances in transportation. There might be advances in hibernation. But how would we physically get ourselves over there with what we can imagine right now? Do you have some ideas? Uh, there is those gigantic spacecraft where you create an entire bios uh, biosphere and you have, they are, uh, in French, we call them NEF because they're kind of a nest. They are gigantic and uh, inside this spacecraft, you kind of recreate a mini Earth with the biosphere, some some changing of lightning. So people have the feeling they have day and, la and night and they live there for a very long period of time as a trip that will last for thousands of years. I don't know if this is durable and there is a lot of science fiction books about that. Um, what is difficult in this case is maybe we'll be probably to keep the motivation to go there. So the time travel is the issue. Uh, but, you know, we, we did not invent airplanes when the, we were in the Middle Age because there were, there were no, no use for this. Airplanes came out because we discovered other continents or we connected other continents because they already existed. But what I meant with that is that if there is a motivation, then there will be a technological solution. Airplanes came out because... Uh, people wanted to be able to travel between Europe and United States and Asia quickly. They, and because we knew those worlds existed. So when we will find those exoplanets, maybe someone will find a way to travel to travel at the fast at the speed close to the speed of light. I know people say it's impossible, but the reason it's impossible is because we don't have the resources or the motivation. When we will find exoplanets around us with life. I'm betting there will be someone who will truly think about how to travel there and they will find a solution and they will find a way to go to bring humanity over there. That makes a lot of sense. Now, so far, I've been a little bit conservative in the questions and that I've been focusing on planets where I'm not assuming necessarily what you might term intelligent life, although that, of course, has its own problems, calling it something intelligent. But what I'm referring to is microbial life. You know, so far, we've been talking about planets that have microbial, bacterial, sort of that kind of type of life. But a large part of SETI, too, is thinking about the communications with other civilizations that might be able to communicate, open to communicate. And so what has been some of the latest work that the SETI Institute has been doing in this field to really bring that forward into the coming decades? Um, one of the new projects is, is called Laser City. Um, and it's coming from the, uh, the, the idea that um, radio is not going to be used for quite a long, uh, for a long period of time. So we have been focusing for 35 years in listening to the cosmos to find techno signatures, assuming that a civilization will become like, uh, like us, will basically uh, use radar, TV, and we are hoping to listen to these radar and TVs, uh, waves. But in fact, um, if you look at our own planet now, we are getting more and more quiet 
in radio because we're using lasers, fiber optics, laser communication between satellites and etc. So one of the goal of the laser city is to detect the presence of those lasers that could imply that there is a slightly more advanced civilization around those those uh, those stars, those nearby stars. Uh, it's a very difficult task, but the interesting point here is that lasers are very easy to detect because they emit light in one wavelength. So the Laser City is a project that will look at the entire sky. There will be multiple stations around the world. There is already one built and, and, and working in California. There will be a second one soon in Hawaii and more later on other, in, on other continents. And these stations look at the entire sky and try to detect laser pulse, which will be, the, will, um, will be interpreted as a presence of a techno, technological civilization. A civilization that may want to tell us that they are here by sending us these lasers, or maybe we are just listening or watching, sorry, in this case, the communication between stations of this advanced civilization. So that's, I think, a, mo- a very interesting concept, and um, oh, I'm hoping that we are going to have this network ready in the next uh, t- five years to be able to search for those laser pearls and know whether or not we are alone in this uh, galaxy. All right, I'll definitely keep an eye out for that. And uh, lastly, because much as I would love to continue, we are running out of time. Um, what aspects of your own research have you been exploring lately to better understand the science of potential other Earths or even just planets that are the size of Earths? Well, I'm involved in multiple um, missions or instruments that will be able to detect Earth-like exoplanets. Uh, one of them is Project Blue. Uh, it's a low-cost mission. We are talking about a few tens of a million here of um, a telescope the size of a mini-fridge to give you an idea of the size, that will look continuously Alpha Centauri A and then Alpha Centauri B. And uh, after 4,000 hours of observation, we our model, models show that we will be able to see the presence of an Earth-like exoplanet around these, those stars. And I think I have multiple other projects, but I think this is one of the most uh, promising and the most challenging one at the same time. But what I really like is that this is a project that could be funded with a few, uh, as I say, tens of a million dollars. So it's something durable. We have the technology to do that now. It's to put adaptive optics in space, to have a a small telescope staring continuously at a very bright star and to be able to detect this uh, pale blue dot and bring Bringing this new this image of a potential new habitable planet in orbit around stars very close to us will have a change in humanity. Um, you, I remember the first time I saw the pale blue dot pictures of in the nineties when Voyager turned around and took a picture of ourselves from far away. I think this is the time I realized that I wanted to become an astronomer because this image has a huge impact on me. And I think this another ima- an image of another planet like Earth in orbit around Alpha Centauri will have a, la- a significant impact on the large number of people on this planet. And maybe one of them will be the one who will invent this new way to go faster than light that I mentioned previously. 
Yes, I'm just remembering my own uh, childhood. I was a little younger than you probably, but I was looking at Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot book where he was talking about that very image and it also had quite the effect on me growing up. And so I agree that it'll be a, a good direction to think about in the future. Thank you so much for finding the time to speak with us. So uh, that was Frank Marches, a senior planetary astronomer at the SETI Institute. And this is Doing Business in the Solar System, where we talk about finding opportunities in the universe. It's a Space Cube podcast and your host is Elizabeth Howell.